Let's turn to Mark's gospel, uh, chapter 6 this evening, Sunday night, Genesis to Revelation, gospel of Mark tonight. If you're with us and you are without a Bible this evening, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now, and if you just wave to them, they'll put one into your hands. If you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from God to you tonight. We pick things up in uh, chapter uh, 6, verse 14, uh, a record of uh, the death, really the murder, of John the Baptist at the hands of a king by the name of King Herod. Now, uh, King Herod heard of him, that is Jesus, for his name had become well known. So you can imagine as Jesus now late in his public ministry has filled uh, all of the land uh, of Israel with uh, miracles and cleansed lepers and people raised from the dead. And of course, uh, the word of this, the sheer crowds that are following him, the word of this would have uh, gone into the highest levels. Herod was uh, an uh, an Idumean. This is one of the sons of Herod, Herod the Great, that had ordered uh, the death of all of the children in Bethlehem at the time of Jesus' birth. The whole family, uh, you think your family's dysfunctional. Uh, the, Herod, the Herod family is just awful, and, uh, and, and so uh, he is now uh, allowed to be the king of the Jews in a territory that um, included the northern part of Israel we would know as the Galilee uh, today. And he, uh, he, was, he was king, he was allowed the title of king by uh, the Roman Empire, but it was a concession. He really r- ruled under the authority of of the Roman Empire and at, at, their, at their pleasure. So here, here now hears uh, that uh, Jesus hears about him, and the conclusion that he comes to uh, concerning this miraculous power associated with uh, Jesus and his fame is that John the Baptist is risen from uh, the dead. Now, it's interesting that he would associate Jesus with John the Baptist because, uh, interestingly, in John the Baptist, uh, the, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist never performed a miracle, but popular, uh, immensely popular among uh, the common person. And so immediately King Herod thinks, this is John the Baptist who has ridden, risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work uh, in him. It's kind of an odd thing for, for Herod of all of the conclusions to come to concerning the ministry of Jesus that he would associate him out of the blue with John the Baptist. And you wonder, why would he be fixated on John the Baptist? Well, we're going to find out in just a moment because uh, he ordered his death, and he is a man who is uh, very much under uh, the weight of a, of a guilty, uh, very guilty conscience. Others said to to Herod in terms of their uh, assessment of of Jesus and who he was and what was the origin of his life, his popularity, his power, they said, it's Elijah, Elijah uh, the prophet who didn't die in the Old Testament, and so it's Elijah come back, or others said, it's the prophet, that is, he's the promised Messiah, promised in in the Old Testament, or he's uh, just another one of the prophets. Uh, in, in a long history of prophets. But when Herod heard, he said he, he was unmoved by any other opinion. He said, no, this is John whom I beheaded, and he has been uh, raised from the dead. And then we're given insight into uh, what, the origin of this guilty conscience. 
For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. Uh, this particular Herod had a brother by the name of Philip and uh, visited Philip and his wife Herodias in Rome. Uh, proceeded to seduce uh, Herodias and convince her to leave Philip, his brother, and then come back to Israel and marry him. All of this was completely a violation of the law of Moses, and the Herods um, marketed themselves as uh, kind of being uh, kings of the Jews and, uh, and of uh, of being, having sensitivities towards the, the Jewish law and uh, uh, the, the Jewish religion. And yet he does this thing, and he uh, violates the law. And uh, John the Baptist uh, ha had said uh, to Herod, verse 18, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. We don't know the context in which this, uh, this conversation occurred, but it did occur and John the Baptist let him know in no uncertain terms, in terms of the weight of the Word of God and what it says about what you've done. Uh, you, it is not lawful. It's a violation of the law to do what you've done to now have married your brother's wife under these circumstances. Well, uh, what's the old saying about a woman scorned? And I don't think men are any better, but we're talking about a, a scorned woman here at this point. And therefore, Herodias… Uh, she held it against John and wanted to kill him. This is a nice wife, and, uh, but she could not. If she'd have had her way, as soon as she found out about John uh, condemning and, the, uh, and being faithful to God to declare God's Word, this is wrong, she would have had him killed uh, immediately. And, but, uh, but she wasn't able to do it. She didn't have the power or authority to do it. For Herod uh, evidently protected uh, John in, in all of this because he feared John, knowing, and that's, uh, this is a man who sinned against knowledge, uh, tremendous knowledge, knowing that he was a just man and a holy man, and he protected him from the desires of his wife for his death. And when he, uh, when he heard him, he did uh, many things and heard him uh, gladly. And so uh, he imprisoned John as a result of this infraction, probably to appease his wife on, on some kind of a level. I'm not going to put him to death, but I will put him in prison. And then he made it a practice to go into the prison or have John sent for and brought to him and uh, for John to speak to him uh, of the things of the Lord. Now, the, um, right now or today is always the right time to do the right thing. And Herod knows that he has done the wrong thing in incarcerating John the Baptist. And if he had looked at it and had any fear of God or the Word of God at all, he would have released him. And if he had done the right thing early in this whole progression and, and said, I don't like what he said to me, I don't like uh, the message that he delivered to me uh, from God in light of God's Word, uh, but that is not a reason for imprisoning, and, and then release John, uh, then everything that unfolds he would have been spared of. 
And uh, if some, one of us or any number of us could be sitting here tonight, and we know what the right thing is to do, but we're waiting for the right moment to do the right thing. But when God's Word says something about a situation, then right now is the time to step out into that. It'll never get simpler uh, than, than th- the moment that we're in. Uh, sin is messy, and sin is complicated, and it really does spin a, a terrible web, and, and Herod's going to get caught in it, but he's, he's not the last one to do it. If we know that we ought to do something, but we're delaying on that tonight, uh, this from the Word of God, to take care of it, be right before God, do what is right as best as we can know the Word of God and understand it, and, and that is the way uh, to live. But he, he listened to John and uh, heard him and uh, heard John's teaching uh, gladly. And, and so this was the relationship. He's playing around. He's playing this game. He's keeping this, this thing open that ought, ought to have absolute closure in his life. And then an opportune day came. It always does come. And uh, it came when Herod, on his birthday, he gave a feast for all of his nobles and the high uh, officers of his, his kingdom and the chief men of Galilee, which was the region of, of his reign. And so you've got all of these uh, uh, high uh, uh, officials that are gathered together for this birthday party of Herod. And when Herodias, his daughter, uh, herself came in, and danced, it pleased Herod and those who sat with him. And uh, so, when it, it, it talks here about uh, uh, the fact that this is, this is Herodias's daughter, the stepdaughter of, uh, of, of Herod here, and when it says that she herself came in and danced, the idea is that all of the professional dancers had already danced, all of the uh, exotic dancers of whatever would be that uh, age to have this kind of a party for a king in those days. They've done their thing, and, and they've left. And then now, in something that's just absolutely unheard of, a princess in a kingdom comes and then dances this lewdly and this suggestively in a public setting, and, and probably um, the rarity of this, I mean, I've never heard of anything like it in terms of, of history. The rarity of, of a young woman conducting herself in this way uh, made it all the more uh, sexually exciting for everyone uh, who was engaged in, in watching it. And so she did her dance. It was a very uh, sensual dance. Herod was pleased with it, as were everyone that was sitting with him. And then under the, uh, under the influence of of lust and this sensuality that's been stirred up inside of him, uh, he did uh, what uh, men can be prone to do in, in that situation, and that is just about the stupidest thing you can do in life. And uh, it's no secret among men, so I, I'm sorry if I've shocked you. It's, a, it's an influence to be very, very careful about and, uh, and to be careful about uh, not coming under it and certainly not making decisions under the, the weight of it. So he says to the girl, uh, ask me, he does it publicly in front of everyone, ask me whatever you want and I will give it to you. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a good sense of proportion in life. Uh, here we've, uh, she's come in and uh, some little nothing, you know, and does this dance and he's going to be willing to give uh, up to half of his kingdom. I mean, that's just, uh, he's out of it, you know, he's, he's, 
he's, he's not working from his mind, you know, at this point. So he, he swears, and this is the offer that he makes. And so she doesn't know what to make of, of the offer. She's, this is all a part of a, a plot with her, her, uh, her mother. She goes back to her mother and says, what shall I ask? This is the offer that's been given. And she didn't hesitate at all, the head of John the Baptist. And so uh, this is what I want, the death of this uh, John the Baptist, who has spoken against uh, us and, ag and against the, the sin in our life. And immediately, uh, the daughter comes in uh, with haste to the king. I mean, there are, everybody's still gathered there and asked, saying, I want you uh, to give me at once the head of John the Baptist uh, on a platter. Uh, I, I, we don't, I don't want to only uh, want him dead, uh, but I want the ultimate evidence of his death, and that is his body severed, uh, his head severed from his body and brought into this very room uh, on a platter. And uh, again, lovely family, uh, it's just awful, awful human beings, just awful human beings. And the king, uh, though, was exceedingly sorry uh, immediately regrets what it is that he has, uh, the promise that he has made. And uh, yet, because of the uh, oaths, and then significantly because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. So he's feeling, if, you know, again, if we think that only teenagers experience peer pressure in life in terms of doing the right thing in the face of temptation, uh, and, and as opposed to doing the wrong thing, then uh, uh, we're still a teenager, uh, because we all know the longer we live that these kind of temptations to save face in these kind of situations, we never outgrow them. And uh, so here in his pride and all, uh, and in order to save face in front of all of those that are with him, uh, and uh, he didn't want to refuse her, and immediately the king uh, set uh, sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought, and he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl uh, gave it to her uh, mother. This is a tremendous exchange. You can picture it in your mind. And when the disciples heard of it, they came and took away his corpse and uh, laid it uh, in, a, in a tomb. Uh, reading this incident, whether no matter what gospel that I read it in, this, and I think I've mentioned it before when we were in, in Matthew, but I mentioned everything before in Matthew. Uh, but uh, this, the death of John the Baptist, it hurts me. It, it hurts my heart. Um, and it's not like it's unique in history. It, it, it will go on all over the world uh, today where this kind of human being, John the Baptist, the caliber of man that he was, the way that God used him, the influence for the things of the Lord, and to have his life be taken by this nothing of a human being, uh, by a, a family that is just scum. And I, and I use the word carefully and, and deliberately, just awful, awful people. And, and that here in the Word of God, in the history of John the Baptist, I think one of the things that, that hurts the most related to it is that a guy as holy as John the Baptist, as good as John the Baptist, as faithful as John the Baptist, has his name forever identified with this Herod family. 
and forever associated with Herod. Have you ever been in a situation that goes sideways? It just turns into an awful situation. And you didn't have any, any it's, just, it's, it's dark, it's ugly, it's sinful, and then somehow, in some way, you were identified with it of your, your own, not of your own doing at all, and, and you walk away from it and you just say to yourself, the thing that kills me is that I am associated with that at all, or with those people at all. I wish I wasn't associated with them. And, and yet, here is John the Baptist, forever linked in Scripture with, with, uh, with Herod here. And I really had to take this to the Lord and, and try and work this through, not just, you know, why do the good die young, and why do the righteous die young, and unfairly so often. And, uh, but then to have his name and, and associated with the story of such a, a despicable uh, man and family. And then, of course, we never take any thought in terms of grappling with anything in the Scripture to its um, place uh, where we're going to gain perspective unless we bring it to Christ. And then we think about Jesus upon that cross. I mean perfection, perfection. John the Baptist is, is wonderful in every way, but he isn't the Son of God, and he wasn't sinless, and he wasn't perfect in that way. And then to think about a little bit, at least as it, as it helps me and my search for it a little bit, to think about Jesus upon that cross and dying for my sins and for your sins and His name forever uh, associated now and linked His reputation with us and with me and with every sin that I've ever committed. And my capacity for sin is just as great as Herod. Herod's uh, uh, Antipas' uh, uh, capacity for sin here, here in this passage. But it, 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 but it hurts, but it gives us an appreciation for what Christ was willing to do for His name, His history, Him as the Son of God to be forever associated with, with people like uh, me. And I won't even include you, but I know you'll include it yourself. Uh, uh, Herod is a classic example in, uh, uh, in terms of, uh, of how to end up with a guilty conscience in life, and a guilty conscience that dominates uh, a person's life, as it did uh, with, with Herod here, how to make tragic decisions in life uh, that end up dogging our consciences for the rest of our life. One of the things that we learn from Herod is if we really want to make a tragic decision in life is to be sure and imprison people uh, who tell you the truth about yourself. That's a great way to get myself in trouble. Silence every single voice, every single source, every single human being in my life that there's no longer a single person who can ever speak the truth to me in my life without uh, the threat of being isolated or, or being in, incarcerated in, in, in some way. Just put to death in whatever means that we have in terms of silencing them, and, but the problem is you can never, ever quiet a guilty conscience by killing the messenger uh, that carries the Word of God. Because I can kill the messenger, and what, and what Herod discovers is you can kill the messenger, 
But you can't kill his message when his message comes from the Word of God. He was still under as much weight in terms of of his guilt over the the sin that he had committed with marrying Herodias and sinning against his brother and against her. But now he adds even more sin to this and ends up with an even greater guilty conscience. And, And people oftentimes attempt to address the convicting power of the Holy Spirit or the conviction that another human being brings into their lives all the way through history uh, by, uh, you know, killing the messenger, but it always results in a a guiltier conscience. The cure, uh, it's never the cure for a guilty conscience when when the, the, the wrongdoing is, again, exposed by the Word of God. A second way to, to make a tragic decision in life is to be more concerned about what others think of us as opposed to God. And again, that environment where He is in there, He knows better. He knows He has made a dumb decision. He's made a wrong decision. He is aware of it. They are aware of it. But because of, uh, of his worrying about what everybody's going to think around him, he doubles down uh, on that decision. And you can never make a, 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 a wrong right by doubling down on it. You can, we can only make a wrong right by confessing it as sin and then repenting of that sin. Uh, and, and so a terrible mistake that, that he makes. And so, and, and so he convinces himself that the, the best way to save face in this situation is just to never admit that you're wrong, even when everybody knows that you're wrong. And this is a terrible pride, and pride is at the core of all sin, really. And it's his pride that keeps him from admitting, uh, admitting that he's wrong. He doesn't want to lose face in front of his wife. He doesn't want to lose face in front of uh, all of his, uh, his uh, friends here. And, and so he goes along with the dumb decision that, that uh, he has, has made. The fact of the matter is, and, th- and this, is, this is the problem with power, and, and all of us have some kind of power and getting lost in your head the way that he gets lost in his head. And you don't even have to have power to get lost in, in your head in, in this way. The fact of the matter is, is that no one will ever, ever lose true face uh, in the minds of others by doing what is right. And, uh, and especially when people recognize this is a person of power, they could bluff their way through it. They could deny their way through it. And, and yet, and this isn't a, a good, an easy environment for them to stand up and say, I was absolutely wrong on this front. I will not continue to do what I have, I have promised to put uh, into motion here. And far from people in the privacy of their own hearts, from uh, looking at that and, and thinking less of a person for doing it, they always esteem them. Uh, we always esteem such a person uh, much, much more highly. And, and the methodology of, of Herod here, again, is a kind of a methodology of, of most people in power. They, they feel that somehow to admit wrong, that that's, uh, that uh, humility would uh, make them appear to be weak in front of other other people uh, when, in fact, people will respect us and love us even more when we do the right thing, and especially when they see uh, that it is a a hard thing to do. 
I, I think about, uh, when I think about Herod here, I always think about the guilty conscience. The whole thing is being driven by a guilty conscience. He's being driven all of his life by this guilty conscience over what it is that he, that he did with John the Baptist. And I am so thankful that the Bible uh, talks about the fact that a faith in Jesus Christ cleanses us from a guilty conscience. you have any guilt in your background? No, don't shout out. It's a rhetorical question, hypothetical. I have things in my past that I would give, um, without knowing Christ, I would give my right arm to be able to have uh, that five minutes back or those words back or that hour back or that day back. And, it, and, and a, a guilty conscience is such a powerful thing and, and, and a, a powerful force within a person's life. And yet I tell you that as a Christian, I live every single day, and when these things want to pop into my mind every so often, I'm able to just look and to recognize the greatness of the forgiveness that is found in Christ and, and, and to remind myself and to remind the devil this is necessary related to that. I am so thankful as I stand before you tonight, and I know that each one of you as Christians could stand here and say the same thing. What a wonderful thing it is to have been cleansed of a guilty conscience. And if you're not a Christian here tonight, and you're under the weight of a guilty conscience, and he, a faith in Him is the only source of freedom. He's the only one that provides that kind of forgiveness. A, not only does He forgive us, but He says, God, then concerning our sin, He remembers it no more. He'll never throw it in our face again. And then to make us into an entirely new creation and give us a fresh start in life. And He is the answer for that. And and, uh, and Herod uh, speaks to us in our own lives of, of how necessary it is. Maybe we haven't committed the sins as grievous as, as he has done, uh, done here, but we all would, apart from Christ, have things, uh, guilt that would be gnawing at our consciences all of our, our life that, that could literally lead to, uh, you know, our own, our own destruction and certainly uh, devastate us in the, the course of the rest of our life. Aren't you glad for the forgiveness that's in Christ tonight? I mean, the blood of Christ, and it has provided us with forgiveness, and, and it continually cleanses us from sin. And then verse 30, the apostles gathered together uh, to Jesus. They told them uh, all things, both uh, what they had done and what they had taught. So remember, they had been sent out in order to preach uh, in, in the Galilee region and do miracles and stay at the different houses and don't choose a, a better house to stay in and, and, uh, and, and all of that. And now they come back to Jesus and report on all that they had done. And, and, he, and he said to them, uh, come aside by yourself to a deserted place and uh, rest a while. They've been really at it for a long time. And, uh, you know, you can't, even in Christian work, um, you know, you, you, um, you, you can't run in fifth gear uh, all of the time. And uh, sometimes the old saying is, well, I'd rather burn out than rust out. Well, um, again, a false dichotomy. Uh, are we dealing with a manic depressive here or what? I mean, are these my only two choices? I'm not putting you down if you deal with that. But uh, there's, a, there's land in between burning out and uh, rusting out. 
And uh, part of not burning out, burning out doesn't bring God glory uh, either, and uh, is Jesus here recognizing this in the disciples and saying, you need some room, you need some rest. And I'll tell you candidly, the average pastor I know and, uh, is, is an absolute workaholic in their calling. Uh, I, don't, I personally don't know of any. They, they probably do exist, but I don't, I don't know of any sluggards that are in the ministry or doing as little as they possibly can in order to uh, just keep things going. And uh, we need things like this where that uh, gives us permission, like in the book of Acts, that the, the apostles were to give themselves to the study of the Word and prayer and not be pulled into every activity in the church uh, as a release from our guilty conscience to, to take that time and make the things that need to be a priority in our life a proper priority. And even seeing here where Jesus recognizes that uh, there are times for rest after uh, peak blocks of of ministry that they had been in, for there were many coming and going. I mean, it's just an absolute uh, uh, sanctified chaos around them in terms of people coming and going, so much so that they didn't even have time uh, to eat. Now, that's busy, that you can't uh, grab a tuna sandwich somewhere at a deli and keep on moving and eating and and, uh, uh, grabbing uh, a Coke or whatever other ungodly drink you… I'm just kidding. Uh, but this is the, the scope of the level of activity that was going on, and so they departed to a deserted place and uh, in a boat uh, by themselves. And so they're going to slip off from the crowd and, and find that, uh, that place to rest for a while. But the multitude saw them uh, departing. And uh, many knew him, and then they ran uh, there on foot from all the cities, and they arrived before them, before the boat docked, and, uh, and came together to him. Now, those of you who have been to Israel, and uh, you realize that the Sea of Galilee is a large sea, but even as large as the sea is, you can see across. You can see all the way across. Uh, I mean, you ought to have you need good eyesight to see whatever's happening on the other side, but you can see across the Sea of Galilee. And, but most often, when Jesus traveled with the disciples on, uh, by boat, they, they, would, they wouldn't go all the way across the Sea of Galilee. There were little cities all the way around the Sea of Galilee, and they would just kind of, uh, you, you know, take a boat from this city uh, to this city over here. It would be kind of working the edges. The roads weren't great uh, around the lake, and the easiest way to make your way would be by boat. And so they get in the boat, and they're starting to make their way to another city, and imagine as they're watching the shore. Uh, Here you've got a multitude of people who are watching where the boat is going, and as you're looking from the boat, it looks as if the entire shore is moving uh, where it is that you're going, and it's people who are racing to get where you might go next. I mean, think about the desperation of the men and the women and the children who would do that. They would leave the one place and then run just to have another contact with Jesus in in some other place. And that's the dynamic of what's going on. it's, It's beautiful related to their hearts, but the desperation 
uh, of recognizing Jesus is the one that it, it holds the key to meeting our, our needs. And, and so as they're headed out in, in, into this desert place, I mean, a deserted place, uh, when they dock, here's the entire crowd they left and even more that's assembled there. I mean, and, and uh, when Jesus then came out of the boat and he saw the multitude, uh, he said, can't a guy get a, 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 any rest around here with you people? And that's not what he did. He was moved with compassion for them. I mean, he sees them doing what they're doing, and his heart is completely uh, broken toward them, moved toward them. And that's his heart toward us. And, he, and he, he's moved with compassion deeply for them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. And remember now, they are in Israel at the time of Jesus. These are probably almost exclusively Jews at, at this point up in the Galilee, but a lot of Gentiles as well. But the only public religious systems that are operating are uh, the, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, all of them misrepresenting uh, uh, God and, and, and religion and, and not leading people into a relationship with God. So he looked at them and said, these people are shepherdless spiritually. And so what did he uh, begin to do? He began to teach them many things. He saw their first and greatest need was to hear something from God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And, I, I, and you th we think about our own lives and, uh, and being hungry, but it, it be, it, having a spiritual hunger and then having a physical hunger, and then here we are in the middle of uh, all of the, the difficulty of life, and if you asked us to, to make a choice, would you rather have a tuna sandwich and have your physical need met, or would you rather hear something from God and about God? And remember now, again, this it is an absolute spiritual drought in Israel at this time. Jesus is the only one in terms of representing God in, in, in a, a dynamic way that, it, that is properly representing God uh, in contrast to the other uh, religious systems. And so he begins to teach them many things. Now, uh, when the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him, and they said to him, this is a deserted place. These men are, uh, are a tremendous help. And uh, they're filled with all kinds of information, uh, as if Jesus didn't know. And uh, that's why they went there. So there were no In-N-Out burgers. There were no, uh, uh, you know, any, any other kind of uh, place. I'm drawing a blank right now. Uh, no breakfast jacks to be had or anything like that. And, and, and they've gone off uh, to this place that is deserted. The people have followed them uh, over there. And, and the hour is getting late. This is probably Aprilish in the year. And, uh, and, and, and now they're uh, and probably somewhere between 3 and 6 in the, in the afternoon, early evening. The day is coming to the end. They've been taught all day. They're going to be hungry. And uh, so here's their solution. Send them away that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing 
uh, to eat. And so the disciples jump in, and they're going to uh, protect Jesus from, uh, you know, kind of uh, the day that he's, he's doing here, and they're going to counsel him on how, how best to handle the remainder of the day, because obviously he's so spiritually minded that he's no earthly good, uh, just preaching and teaching and all of this, and he's lost sight of the fact that people get hungry and, and, and so forth. And so they're going to counsel the Lord. You ever counsel the Lord? <laughs> he's so appreciative, isn't he? I mean, he just, he just hits himself in the forehead and says, Kyle, <laughs> I can't wait till you're up here. Man. We're barely getting by with the ideas you come up with in, in life. But Jesus answered, and he said to them, you give them something to eat. So if you guys are full of such great ideas about how to handle all of this situation, you give them something to eat. And that's a command that he gives to them. And uh, so they then, obviously, they begin to assess what do they, how, how in the world can they perform this? Uh, Jesus is asking them to do something that's literally impossible. So how can they uh, perform this? And so they, we know from the other gospels that they kind of did a huddle together, and they came up with different ideas about what they might do, and they pooled their money, and, and it appears that they had 200 denarii or 200 uh, days' wages of, of money with them, and they responded by saying, shall we go and, and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and uh, give them something to eat? Is that what we need to do? Go and buy food, come back and feed them? Because that's how much food it's going to take, almost a year's wages for a blue-collar worker to feed this crowd. And, and we'll see later that it's, it's 5,000 uh, uh, people. And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And they went and they found, and, and, and when they found out, they said, five, uh, five loaves and two fish. And they'd gotten it from a little boy, as we know from other gospels. And then Jesus commanded them uh, to uh, take, uh, make the crowd all sit down in groups, on the green grass, again, April up in the north and the, the Galilee along the Sea of Galilee. And, and so they sat down in ranks in hundreds and in fifties. Jesus is going to do a miracle, but you, you know, you ever watch those things where food kind of arrives in uh, some kind of a refugee camp or some drought uh, a stricken part of the world, and the trucks pull up, and they've got all of these things that they're starting to offload, and it just turns into an absolute riot uh, of people pushing and shoving over one another. That's not the scene that Jesus wanted to have happen here. And so, he's, he, ha he does it all decently and in order. They sit down and, as He prepares to, to feed them. It, it always reminds me of at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, where Paul is talking about the exercise of spiritual gifts within a local congregation. And he closes that section by declaring, let all things be done decently and in order. And it's a beautiful balance related to spiritual gifts, because he says, let all things be done. So there, there needs to be uh, that part of, of uh, the Christian life and the, and the part of that dynamic within a Christian body but it is to be done decently and in order. And in the church at Corinth, all things were being done, but they weren't being done decently and in order. And, and, uh, and that's how God wants it done. That's how the Holy Spirit works. And we see it demonstrated even in, in Jesus' life. And when He had taken the five loaves and the two fish, He looked up to heaven, and He blessed, and He broke the loaves. 
And he then gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he did the same likewise in dividing uh, the fish. And the loaves were multiplied, the fish were multiplied, the food was taken out in baskets by the disciples out among uh, all of the people. And so they all ate and they were filled. They were absolutely stuffed, absolutely glutted, could not eat another uh, bite. And then having reached that point, they then took up the 12 baskets full of the fragments uh, of the fish. Interesting here where Jesus, as he, as he works this miracle and how He works the miraculous in, in our lives, is that He will, in our lives, and you've probably noticed this about Him, He will always do what He alone can do, but very rarely will He do for us what we can do. Uh, he's not developing weak people. Uh, in, in developing Christians. And that's, that's the line that he draws. Nobody can do the miracle. He does the miracle. But they can serve, so he's not going to serve it to them. And the, in this perfect balance. And so they were all filled. They took up the 12 baskets full of, of fragments and of the fish. No waste. Uh, nothing is to be wasted that belongs to God at all, even though God could create uh, all of the wealth and all of the resources we could ever want with His Word, but it's never to be wasted. And now those who had eaten the loaves were about uh, 5,000 men, and so uh, probably another uh, comparable number in terms of women and children, so somewhere between uh, 10,000 and, and maybe 10,000 and, and 15,000 uh, total. And I think one of the lessons of, of this particular passage, and it's interesting that this feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels. So apparently it's very important to God. And apparently the lesson is very important uh, to God, that no matter which gospel we read, we are going to read in the course of it this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And I think one of the things that it teaches us, and, and probably the, the supreme thing that it teaches us, is that the greatest, our greatest resource in any situation that we find ourselves uh, in is the very resource that we most often overlook and we only turn to when we've exhausted every other resource in our life, and that is Jesus Himself. And the disciples, they hear, they're told to do something by Jesus, and, and what do they do? They put their noggins together, and now they're going to try and accomplish it in their own wisdom. They pull their money together. Now they're going to try to accomplish it in their own resources. And it is, it's so interesting. You may not be like me at all, but it's something that I think uh, all of us, as we serve the Lord, we have to deal with on, on, on some measure where we, God tells us to do something. In terms of ministry, our own personal life, and he tells us or calls us to do something, and the very first thing that we do in determining whether it is possible or impossible is to assess it in the light of our own resources, in the light of our own intellect, our own ideas, our own strength, our own financial resources or material resources. And, and then to conclude that something is impossible when God calls us to do something that exceeds those resources. And only then, typically when Jesus points it out as He does to them here, only then do we realize that the greatest resource they had in that scene was not their money, 
And it wasn't their ideas, but it was Jesus Himself present with them. And the same thing related to our lives, where so often we come to the end, we're in a heap, we can't do this, this is impossible, uh, Lord, and we have not counted Him among our resources in doing what He has called us to do when He is our greatest resource. And, and the importance then of, of, of giving Him that kind of place. And how does that happen? Well, it happens by, first of all, by uh, me stopping uh, telling God what to do, and then to put what I have into His hands, and, and then to pray to Him for wisdom, for direction, for resources to do this impossible thing that He is, uh, humanly impossible thing that He's called us to, and then whatever He tells us to do, to do it by faith. And what He does in calling us to do something, and then we take a step out in faith in that based upon His resources. How that all turns out, that's His problem. That's not my problem, but I make it my problem. My problem is to obey, is listen to obey Him, and give Him an opportunity to do a miracle through my life and my obedience in other people's lives. But we talk ourselves out of it, out of so much by uh, living as if we do not have the greatest resource in the world already as a part of, life, of our life related to anything that God calls us to do, and that is the presence of, of Jesus Himself. And immediately He made His disciples get into the boat and uh, go before Him uh, to, the, uh, to the other side. And, uh, and, and very important to notice here as he, he speaks to them here, he's, the crowd is here, this 5,000 plus are there, they've been fed. Uh, Jesus wants them to go to the other side to a city called Bethsaida, and uh, uh, let me make sure I got that, yeah, Bethsaida, and, uh, and to go there, and he's going to dismiss the crowd. And the Lord and Jesus Himself has a sense that in, in just the demands and the dynamic of His, his ministry, that He needs uh, some time to be spent uh, with the Father in prayer. And, uh, and, and so, He tells them, uh, they, they told them to get into the… immediately He made them get into the boat and uh, to go before Him to the other side. Very important to understand that. He tells them two things. You're going to go to the other side. And, uh, and I'm going to meet you there. Uh, go before me there. And, and uh, two important things. And while he sent the multitude away, and when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain uh, to pray. And when evening had come, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on land. Everybody's cleared out on land, headed for home, and they're out in the middle of the sea. And then he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them and trying to get to Bethsaida. And, uh, and you can picture them. This is, it's, a, it's a beautiful picture of the disciples, and they're straining. Remember, this has already been an extremely demanding day, uh, sun up to sundown, and now they're in spending the entire night rowing a boat trying to get to the city that Jesus told them uh, to, to go to. And I mean, it's very commendable that they're doing everything within their strength to do what it is that He has, he has told them uh, uh, to do uh, against the wind. And now about the fourth watch, the fourth watch was three in the morning till uh, six in the morning, so they've been at this for a very long time, 
Jesus then, during that watch, came to them, and He's walking on the sea and would have passed them by. Uh, I'd like a picture of that. Uh, so, it's like He's told them to meet Him on the other side, and uh, looks like they're having trouble in that boat. I think I'll just keep walking right on. Uh, this looks like the easier way to go. That's obviously not what was going on in his mind, uh, but he starts to walk uh, uh, by them, and, uh, and when they saw him walking on the sea, I mean, they, you just don't see that every day. Uh, they supposed uh, that he was a ghost, and they cried out. So here you've got these grown men, these fishermen, and they're absolutely terrified. I mean, they're, they're, uh, they're, they're crying out, they're yelling, they're uh, terrified. It, it, there's something out there walking on uh, the water uh, as if things couldn't get any worse. And uh, for they all saw him, and they were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and said to them, be of good cheer and do not be afraid. And they, at that point, recognized him to be uh, who he was. And then he got up into the boat uh, to them, and the wind ceased. And they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure, and they marveled, for they had not uh, understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. And so Jesus gets into the boat, and immediately, supernaturally, the boat is at its, its destination. Uh, Mark was... Uh, uh, John Mark here is a, a, a disciple of the Apostle Peter, and most people consider Mark's gospel to be uh, the gospel that Peter would have written if God had chosen him to write it. It's probably heavily influenced by, uh, by Mark's relationship with Peter. And it is uh, interesting that uh, here we see noticeably in, in the passage there's no mention of Peter stepping out and walking on the water or sinking. Uh, all of that is in Mark's gospel and, uh, or Matthew's gospel, and, and so it's, it's eliminated here, but it was all a part of the larger story. Again, uh, Mark is, is a little ADD. He's uh, moving, 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 moving. And uh, I again, I like it where somebody likened the way that he, he does things. is like looking through a, 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 a photo book and then look at this picture and this picture and this picture and this picture. And, and uh, uh, the complete story isn't the, the, the greatest interest to him uh, just to, to point, out, uh, point out the Lord as a servant in, in the gospel. And uh, so, here we see the same thing as, as happened uh, even, you know, very recently as we saw the other incident, and, and, uh, in, uh, and they don't… Uh, Jesus told them, you're going to go to the other side, I'm going to meet you there. That was His Word, and His Word uh, came, uh, came to pass. I never tire of the lesson because um, I… I I, one day I'll be very happy to be done with this uh, old nature, this old man. And uh, I don't know why, after having walked with the Lord all this time, I mean, I'm not the person I used to be at all. I mean, I've, I've grown a lot. But, uh, but I, I, I still uh, have, I still will struggle in a time of great trial like th these men are in, in the middle of that boat. And, and that doubt can come into my mind whether uh, what Jesus has told me to do is going to happen, that we're going to get to the other side and He's going to meet us there. But then, but then the long history that all of us have with the Lord 
of, of the fact that always, no matter what the difficulty is, when, when given enough time, His Word always has the final say. It's the thing that comes true in, in, always in the circumstances uh, of our life. And, and it's something we can relate to as Christians, related to uh, uh, our, own, our own life, our own Christian life, and in our own history uh, with the Lord. I have never, ever known, not one single time, and I've been walking with the Lord for a long time, ever, ever been in a situation that when I ultimately got through it, that God's Word wasn't what uh, 100% uh, his promise is what came to pass in that situation. And uh, I hate any time that I waste in my life doubting that or wondering with that or struggling with that, um, but uh, just continue to try and grow in that and to minimize it in, in my life, and one day we'll be done with it altogether. But in whatever you might be facing this evening… And it looks like this, is, this promise of God is, is simply not going to happen in this situation. And, and yet, as time goes on, it, it, it will. Your life uh, is wrapped up as, in his life as a Christian. And uh, your, uh, his reputation is wrapped up now in you and in, in your life and in his faithfulness to your life before the whole world and before your family, and before your unsaved husband or wife or children, and he'll always be faithful to his word. And when they had crossed over, they came uh, uh, to the land of Gennesaret, and they anchored there. And uh, when they came out of the boat, immediately the people uh, recognized him. So no sleep that night, uh, but uh, too bad, here comes another day, and a uh, day in the life, you know. And, and uh, uh, the people came out, immediately the people recognized him, ran through the whole surrounding region, began to carry uh, about on beds those who were sick and whoever, uh, uh, and uh, to wherever they heard that he was. And, and it's just a, a, a sheer mass of people coming out of the rural regions and, and a sea of infirmity coming to Jesus, and wherever he entered, into villages, cities, or the country, they laid the sick uh, in the marketplaces and begged him that they, might, uh, that they might just touch the hem of his garment, and as many as touched him uh, were uh, made well. And so, I love how uh, Bill McDonald puts it in his commentary. Uh, he said, and so the doctors in that area had a holiday, and uh, one day they'll have a permanent holiday in a new heaven and a new earth, uh, but a uh, beautiful, beautiful picture of, of uh, the life and the ministry of Jesus. Let's stand together now, and we'll close in prayer and a, a worship song in a moment. Father, thank you for these snapshots of Jesus' life and his ministry. And I, I would just pray for any man or woman that stands before you tonight with a guilty conscience and living under the immense burden of, of guilt and of regret and uh, of, of a, a, a conscience that is working powerfully upon them 
And I pray, Lord, for each one that would be unsaved and looking back on with deep regret at things within their life, that they would surrender to you tonight and come into the completeness of the forgiveness that you provide to us in your Son. And tonight, Lord, we praise you as Christians for how you have freed us from spending all of our days and all of our waking moments lamenting the actions of our past and have freed us to walk in joy and in peace and in gratitude to you. Lord, I pray too, and we do for every Christian that stands before you right now that is carrying the regret of some sin that they've committed in the course of their Christian life and that you would cause them before they leave this room tonight to uh, wash up with uh, that wonderful promise that you give us in 1 John, that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to uh, cleanse us of our, uh, forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and that all of us would be able to walk tonight, away tonight, leaving all of those things with you and the torment that's associated with it. I pray, too, as we close this evening, that you would help us in the coming week and in the remaining part of our pilgrimage when we face these impossible situations in life and so many of them impossible situations that you call us to as you did the disciples, that you, every time we begin to count up our pennies or we begin to figure out how this can happen in our own wisdom, that you would quickly remind us that our greatest resource is not what we have or our wisdom, but you, Lord, and the wisdom and the power that you provide, and that we would move very, very quickly to then asking you how you want to accomplish what you are calling us to do. Thank you for this time in your word this evening. We thank you for our Savior tonight, and we thank you in his name, in Jesus' name, amen. And if you stand here tonight,